Welcome to Network AF, a journey of super nerd proportions into the world of networking, cloud, and the internet. I'm Avi Friedman, networker, coder, husband, and CEO of network observability company Kemptic. On this first episode, we'll talk with my friend Andre Tunk of OpenDNS, EGPMon, Cisco, and multiple networking projects about career and networking evolution. Some of the takeaways you'll hear are about overcoming intimidation, staying connected to mentors, driving your own growth. And on the networking side, we'll talk about the internetworking world, SRE and networking and the relationship, and some of the trends in disaggregation and cloud scale networking. Welcome everyone to Network AF. I'd like to introduce my friend and fellow networker, Andre Tunk. Uh, Andre, if you could give us a brief background about yourself and uh, what you've been up to and what you're up to now. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me, Avi. So my name is Andre. I'm based out of Vancouver, Canada. Uh, like everything networking and I guess what we now call DevOps. So I've been sort of doing that for the last 20 years. I think what's unique is that I've always had one leg in what I call DevOps now and sysadmin in the past maybe and networking uh, in the other. So um, really always try to take the learnings from mostly sort of the, the DevOps world into the network world. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, started my career at the Amsterdam Internet Exchange, worked for a few ISPs, moved to Canada, Vancouver, uh, 15 years ago, um, uh, in 2012, joined uh, a, a company that, that really changed a lot for me uh, called OpenDNS as one of the early, uh, what was back then called ops engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a lot of fun. And you know when I joined, uh, OpenDNS had a few uh, pops or data centers. Uh, I recently left last fall, and, and I think they're up to 40. And so that's been a very exciting and an interesting journey and learned a lot there. Um, and then also, I think one other thing a lot of folks might know me from is I founded a company called BGPMon. Um, and Thank I know you. a lot of folks, yeah, <laughs> I know Kentic, uh, obviously, and Avi through that and through Cisco. And I know at Cisco, we were big fans of, of Kentic. Um, and so, um, yeah, everything around uh, BGP monitoring, hijacks, outages, and, and, and that kind of cool stuff. Uh, I don't know, Avi, you're super interested in that. And, and you even had a predecessor to that. I think it was called uh, I did. Watch My Net or something. Yeah, it was Watch My Net. Uh, Andy Freed. Actually, I met Gadi Avron at a convention for people that run science fiction conventions. And uh, he did the... Uh, you know, taunting me to discover whether I was a worthy nerd, which I don't really enjoy. But anyway, I did that. And then he's like, you can't build a BGP monitoring system. And I'm like, well, I don't really do the front end, but I could certainly. I remember the front end was like a Perl CGI. It it was PHP. Yeah. with Andy Freed. Freed, (laughs) uh, Now it's BAMHouse actually did. But I think it was like a week. I'm like, and I tried to compile my old BGP implementation that I wrote for my interview at AboveNet that used to run the RBL. And I was like, oh, I guess BGP's changed a little. So I found some BGP Perl thing and made it, yeah. made it work and, you know, dumped the things and did the grabbing. And uh, yeah. yeah, I just didn't really try to put, well, I should have, but, you know, BGP Mon did, did well and uh, maybe not, uh, yeah, it did well, got a huge community. Um, and yeah, so, I got a huge yeah. community and uh, eventually got acquired and it's now still, I think, being run by Cisco, uh, although I think they're shutting it down, but uh, um, you it might got, actually know better by now, but... It got uh, rewritten and put into something and yeah. now they're a respected competitor because Kentik is just launched... Kent's doing right? something similar, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know obviously you guys have uh, Doug Midori, who's like an expert in this field too. So, you know, anyways, that was a really fun journey. Um, and, uh, and then I left Cisco. Uh, so a lot of that 
so was around that uh, last fall. And right now I'm uh, on a bit of a sabbatical and trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. Okay, well, we can talk about that because uh, I am only one of many people, I'm sure, that has tried to recruit you and you've been like, no, it's okay, uh, but have been following some of the fun stuff that you've been doing, uh, you know, which again, we can talk about. So so what what got you, you know, you said systems. I know a lot of people are like, oh, networking is hardware. It's like, really? I mean, it's hardware that runs software. Systems are software, software you know, that can run networking. I mean, it is, I have always seen that it can be a continuum. Uh, but like, what got you into the networking, especially inter-networking, but networking overall side of things? Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess I was lucky. Um, when I was in university, we had a, uh, a teacher um, that somehow, I guess, got a deal with Cisco and he had these Cisco labs and CCNA was just becoming a big thing. And I guess Cisco had sponsored a lab in my university. And uh, so they had all the gear and then they had also just released all these kind of flash-based uh, tutorials like uh, exam material that you could basically follow and then uh, and then you learn about networking. Mm-hmm. Turned out that uh, I had just moved out of my parents' place to like the university there and I didn't have too many friends there yet. And um, and the ones that I had, they they still lived at home. So I, I kind of got used to that lab and it was open basically till midnight. <laughs> and I was like, this is all, I got addicted to it. It's a lot of fun. And then I just started doing them. And then, you know, I got really interested in it and got really good at it. So that's how it started. That's how I originally got into it. Um, Although, to be honest, I guess I worked at a help desk before as well. But this is really how I got into the networking. Yeah. Then I got a uh, a gig at AMSEX, the Amsternet Internet Exchange, which is like, you know, one of the larger internet exchanges in the world. Uh, that's where I even learned more. That's for me, this is where the door opened be- beyond the default route. So I didn't know, like I knew BGP. Right. And it's like you set a default route to your ISP. But it never occurred to me, like, what happens after the default route? And then I ended up there. I was like, wow, there's a whole world behind here, which is super fascinating. And I really never really left that world. Like that's, uh, you know, it's so fascinating. Uh, that's how I really got into it. Um, Cisco labs, help desks, and then the door to the, uh, yeah, you know, core of the internet between quotes. Uh, and uh, yeah. I remember the first time I visited Amzix, uh, uh the university park side, and I'm not used to smelling smoke in a data center, but like people are still that was long enough. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, smoking in the lobby right outside the data center, and I'm like, usually it's bad if you let the smoke out of the computer. The magic smoke, you know, yeah. is what makes it run. Um, and then I remember they had like that was I think the first time I saw like the forklift for like sticking stuff in, and of course the the glimmer glass, which if it was in the United States, you would think was for the NSA, but was actually for an interesting approach to to layer. Layer zero, uh, HA. That's, uh, it's interesting you bring that up. So, so uh, my first real job was at SARA, uh, which is oh, in the yeah. in the science park where yeah. a lot of the AMSIC stuff is. Um, and um, yeah, some of my coworkers are still smoking when I worked there. And so I worked on the network called SurfNet, which is sort of the internet two of the US. Um, but uh, my first, one of my first automation experiences, like network automations, was all around TL1. Um, and I worked a lot with someone at Amzix and Aryan, if you're listening, um, and they were automating the glimmer glass with TL1. Oh, and we had a lot of optical gear, like um, uh, um, Nortel gear. Uh, so telco gear has a standardized language, which is called TL1, for folks that don't know that. This is a really obscure thing. I didn't know uh, that. I didn't know that. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, so all the telco gear seems to have, or at least in the past, uh, different vendors, Cisco, Nortel, Shiana, all spoke the same kind of language. Um, and so we built some Perl libraries to automate that together with this. With the awesome, Perl. M6, Yeah. Uh, to to do the uh, the glimmer glass. Yeah. Actually, for those that don't know, um, it is an interesting take. 
I don't know if they still do it anymore, but the glimmer glass was sort of like it was an active. The idea was you'd have a standby port. It would be watching, so it'd be doing the Mac learning. And then when they wanted to maintain a switch, they'd was it a whole switch? They'd flip over to another. It was like yeah. A, so they, I think they just had basically two switches. Uh, so, so what the, the a glimmer glass is basically a big switch with mirrors in it. Right, and it's an optical switch, but it's a, it's a very dumb switch, right? So it's either goes to switch A, so the cable comes in and says, "Oh, I wanted to go to switch A," and then switch A is unhealthy. Well, then they change the mirror slightly, and then it will go to switch B. Sure. And so the advantage as a customer was that you only needed one connection, uh, and then uh, sort of on the on the provider side, they they would just say, "Oh, you know, switch A is unhealthy. We'll switch you to switch B," yeah. uh, and then you want to automate that. But the cool thing is that it was all optical with mirrors, yeah. essentially. Yeah, opti- automated mirror is pretty cool. Yeah, um, automated patch panel, whatever you want to yeah. call it. Yeah. So, were there? Did you have great mentors? Were there? You know, how did you? You know, get get. Was it? Was it? You know, you did the lab yourself. Did you have people pointing you at the things to learn? And and you know, was was there that kind of culture there at the time? I think uh, sort of the, you know, if I think back about the lab and really getting into networking and Cisco and, you know, you know, a lot of people give uh, crap on like the certification programs. But to be honest, I think if it weren't for those, I would not not have gotten into it. I think it gave me a solid kind of uh, background in terms like what is BGP, what's OSPF, what's, uh, you know, whatever, and and actually some hands on and, and, and getting some of the basics in. And so for me, that was a great way. Uh, to get in. Uh, I was surrounded by uh, sort of that teacher and a few other folks that, that that shared that passion. I don't think if there was really a mentor there at that point, it was pure passion, uh, but certainly the opportunity was created for me to to do spend however much I wanted on like all the cool gear. Um, I If I think about not, uh, mentors, I've had a few over my career, but I think uh, early on uh, when I was still in the Netherlands, um, there was someone called named Ronald um, and, um, at Sara, and he really got me into the automation type thing. He was a really smart guy. And um, in university, we had to do some programming, but I never enjoyed it. I never really got into it. <laughs> and uh, but, but I guess the problem was you were just doing puzzles. And I was like, right. I, I don't get it. It's kind of boring. And uh, I want to go back to the lab, you know? Um, and then all of a sudden I was running this, uh, this was at SurfNet. We were running this, you know, fa- that's a very advanced uh, network uh, and uh, very large. And uh, because all this new gear and, and, and for especially the Nortel stuff, the network management systems didn't exist yet for Nortel. So again, in the, in the telco world, you basically buy the network management system from the vendor, but because right. the, it was also new, it didn't exist or it was, or it was very expensive. And so uh, he and I kind of started going like, okay, how would we do this ourselves? And it was a whole, you know, back then Pearl was a big thing. And yeah, and he took me under his wing. And then there was another guy named Marco who helped me with a lot of PHP stuff. And all of a sudden, my passion for programming um, kind of came back because all of a sudden, I had an itch to scratch. I had an actual problem. And, uh, you know, (laughs) it would solve me sometime in the middle of the night or whatever. You know, I would get, I was, you know, an ent- an, uh, a new engineer sort of, uh, so they gave me all the crappy jobs, like go collect all the serial numbers from all the devices. It's right. like, well, that's a three-week job, right? right? Or I can spend two days programming this thing and then run it in an hour and it's done. Laziness breeds elegance, you know, yeah. in many people, yeah. right? It's the, why do I want to do this again and again and again? And and it's an interesting theme. I guess we'll talk about it because some of the things that you've done are now living between networking and systems, but... Um, in there were in some ways more advances in networking 
automation, at least the life cycle, even before that really became, you know, crawled out of the high-performance computing world and became cloud and, you know, SRE. And then I guess it sort of stopped for a while. Uh, but uh, no, that's that's definitely interesting. So, so, so Avi, just maybe one step back with the mentors, right? So there's been a few throughout my career and, and those are the ones that really helped me going. And then um, I guess my message would be to folks that, yeah, do find out or find mentors, people that want to help you. And, you know, to be honest, it always sounds a little bit scary, but a lot of times it's just like, find someone you respect or who is like, you know, a few years ahead of you and just, you know, this, this can be a lot of things, but a lot of times it's just like unofficial, right? Just uh, have a coffee with that person once a week or once a month. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that relationship changes over time and with whom, but there's so much you can learn from others if you're just kind of open to it. Um, and even for me, I, even now I meet with a lot of folks um, and sometimes they're just chats and sometimes um, you're like, wow, they're full of gold. So I think it's very important. And I, I also tell people like a lot of folks within a company have one-on-ones. So it's like, you know, if I work for Cantic, I would have a one-on-one right. with, with, with you, for example, right? Every week. But more and more, I find like, it's very important to, so if you're doing that, keep doing that, but also do it with people outside of your company. So, you know, that's a very well understood thing. But as you go further on in your career, um, there's only so much you can learn. And the company is a little bit of a bubble in itself. Mm -hmm. So work on like, hey, someone you worked with in the past. Mm -hmm. And that's a one-on-one too. Don't feel guilty that you spend an hour talking to someone at another company uh, because you're learning from that too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sometimes I get daunted when I looked at my LinkedIn and I try to accept yeah. only people that I know. <laughs> but you never, you never really know um, what you know, can come in the future, you know, from staying connected to people, um, you know, definitely for sure. The other thing I would encourage is, um, you know, there's lots of different terms for the bright, shiny eyed uh, kid. But if you demonstrate that you are interested in learning and picking things up, um, you know, there's often, especially in university, but even in companies, ways to get involved in, you know, projects and learn and, you know, uh, in, in a healthy company, in a healthy environment, People will invest in you, uh, you know, if it's clear that you're that you're, you know, learning and growing, and hopefully we'll pay it back too, you know, at some point. With COVID, we need to figure out some of these things, um, you know, how that's all going to work and how we grow the community. Uh, but uh, you know, those are all things that we as a community are thinking about. So you mentioned sort of, I guess now we have to say SRE or DevOps or DevNetOps, but you know, the, the link between these, and you know, you certainly have come from the world of. Well, the labs, you know, the 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 actual Cisco 2500s and 7500s and such, and also, you know, on the internet routing where it's already virtual and open DNS was, I mean, services on top of right a network, you know, with any cast mm -hmm. and load balancing and things like that. But I see you've been playing a lot with data plane networking, eBPF. Actually, the prehistory of Kentic was network sensors doing, you know, packet stuff. And then I just got really interested. Customers said, what do we do with all the data? But, you know, what, what, what was your interest in, you know, playing with high-speed networking through uh, systems and all the, you know, the Linux, you know, evolution around that, that you know, yeah. stuff on? I think there were a few things that drove me to sort of dig into it deeper, um, I, you know, some of it was driven by the things that were happening in my work environment back then, where, uh, you know, at Cisco Umbrella and a lot of other folks are doing this is uh, with the, what's called SASE, where basically what's happening is you're, you're, you're 
offering the, the typical network services as a service, right? So typical network components like a load balancer or a firewall or NATing or IPsec. And you see this in all the old cloud providers, right? Amazon has mm-hmm. IPsec gateways or whatever, NAT gateways. But, um, and so traditionally we would ship lots of, you know, appliances. Boxes, uh, but yeah. so that, that doesn't really work anymore. And, um, and so the question then becomes, how do you um, build these things in a virtual environment in a cloud native way uh, and so that that was uh, something I worked on a lot and was super fascinated about because again it brought together sort of those two worlds that I was was kind of interested in and so that worked really well for me. Um, and so there's two challenges to be solved. One of them is sort of the uh, the implementation on the control plane and management plane, like because you know the nice thing about an appliance is it has ASICs and and you know basically they scale vertically, right? They can do a hundred gig in one device, for example. Well, there's no way you can get that out of a VM, right? So how so then you're faced with you have to basically disaggregate that, and right. so now you need to have I don't know, let's call it ten VMs to do the equivalent of one big box. Um, and now you're basically into the distributed computing uh, problem and like how do you synchronize state and like all that kind of stuff. So that's a whole interesting problem. So that was part of the problem space, which is super interesting. Um, and, you know, some people call it microservices, but basically it's a distributed computing problem. And then the other part is um, speed. These big boxes have, you know, ASICs and they go like crazy. Like they're really fast, right? And um, um if you do this in virtual environments, you actually have a problem because, well, there's a, a few problems. The first one you often hear about uh, was Linux networking is slow, right? And, <laughs> you know, you, you know that's kind of true, I guess, right? And uh, so part of my journey was to define what is slow, like what is slow. And so the conclusion was in Linux, I'm, I'm going to you know skip a whole bunch of details, but sort of you can do a million packets uh, per second per core. Uh, that's sort of the rough... Uh, through the kernel. So just to be clear, through the kernel, forwarding using the IP stack. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thanks that's for clarifying. The base, that's the baseline, right? The base right. thing, yeah. And and there's a whole bunch of details there, but that's a rough, if you want right. to take a number. So if you just use kernel networking, you, you say the kernel does the forwarding. It's a million packets per second per core. So that's, you know, whether that's slow or not, it really depends on your situation. But certainly if you're trying to do 100 gig through a, a, a firewall service in a data center and you want to do that through that, well, that's, uh, okay. Now, now you really have to do, uh, first of all, again, I'm talking about 100 gigs, but really what the, the, the number is we should be talking about is the number of packets per second. And the reason why we say packets per second, because roughly speaking, again, I'm skipping a bunch of details is, Every packet per second is an interrupt or a soft interrupt, essentially, right? And this is where the CPU speed then kicks right. in. So um, anyway, so that's, um, and actually, we'll go a little bit deeper since we're here with Avi and we can go geeky. <laughs> so that's just the kernel, right? Right. Um, but a lot of, and let's say you're a fancy shop and like, we're doing Kubernetes. Okay, cool. So what does a typical Kubernetes world look like? Well, actually, you run Kubernetes with basically Docker containers on a VM host on hardware, right? And so typically in the world of Linux, you have these, what we call VEEF, virtual network interfaces connecting Mm -hmm. them. So if you now look at the path and the cost that it takes to take a packet off the physical wire into say the the hypervisor, so that's the first NIC you got into, the network interface, so that's an an interrupt. So then you go into the um, sort of the, the VM host, and then you go into the Docker. And so there's typically three Physical, VEEF to the VM host, VEEF to the CNI. container. 
You might have yeah, yeah. a magic tunneling, you know, policy enforcement. Oh yeah, there's that too. So, <laughs> but yeah, just as an example, so there's a few of these like virtual interfaces, but they all have a cost. They all have that, you know, 1 million packets per second per core type thing. So now if you have a, a simple scenario, as I just explained, and you know, there's lots of variants, then all of a sudden your budget's cut in three, right? Um, very crude. Right. So anyways, that was one something that uh, when I was in that world, it's like, well, this sucks because how are we ever going to build a 100 gig IPsec gateway, for example, at, right. at, uh, at a reasonable cost? Um, and so that then, so the long story short, and I started exploring what are the other alternatives. And so there's two main alternatives that, that have a bit of traction. Uh, one of them people have probably heard of is uh, DPDK. Um, and so DPDK is basically a very fast uh, driver um, that uh, that bypasses the kernel. Um, but but, but it it's only really works well with spin locking, right? So. Yeah, so basically the CPU runs all the time, whether you have packets or not. So it's a little bit of cheating, but you know, if you work in network-heavy environments, you probably don't right. care about giving up a CPU just for the networking. So basically it takes away, and this is part of the challenge, Linux is a multi-user, multi-function system. And so it's optimized to be as generic as possible. Right. Whereas for a lot of these workloads, actually, you don't want, you know, you don't want time sharing. You basically say, hey, this CPU, all you're doing is doing network packets. So then you could do leverage the L1 caching and, and all that kind of uh -huh. stuff. So basically that's what DPDK does. Um, but then DPDK only does sending and receiving. It doesn't do forwarding, for example. So mm -hmm. now you need to build a network function that that actually understands, well, this packet with this destination IP or Mac should go there. Right. That's what VPP does. Um, so that we can dig deeper there. But DPDK and VPP is one option. And then you have, um, in the BPF world, you have XDP. So DPDK and VPP completely bypass the kernel, uh, which is very interesting. So uh, those the, the NIC, the network interface, right. literally disappears from, if you do ifconfig or IP link, you don't see it anymore. You gave it to a userland program and that's taking care of it. Can which you... is can you use SRIOV and make some of the NIC interrupts disappear or it takes over the whole NIC only? Yeah, you can uh, yeah, you can do SRIOV and then uh, it makes it a little bit easier because uh, then you don't have to have okay. dedicated NICs. Um, but to simplify, so, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainly good for testing. Like if you don't yeah. have a machine with multiple, because okay. then you need an out-of-band for management. So the other one is XDP, uh, which actually is a little bit of a hybrid between the two uh, and it allows you to execute network code. So XDP is basically... Uh, uh, part of BPF. So a lot of folks have heard of BPF and the specific BPF code related to networking is called XTP, Express Data Path. And it basically executes some of the network code a lot earlier on in the Linux kernel stack. Uh, and so as a result, it's a lot cheaper. So it's, it's before it's above the driver, but before the IP stack. Yeah, it's it's after the driver uh, and it's like almost immediately after the driver code and what they... Basically, what they say in Linux, you have this concept of SKBs, uh, which is a, a structure for sockets. Uh, and as soon as you get there, you get very slow. Uh, and so they said, we want to do a lot of work before that. Um, and so that's what you can do. And so one in one of my blogs, I, I said, okay, let's say you have two network interfaces and I want to route between them. I still want to use BERT or whatever as a BGP daemon and a BERT and build then the forwarding in XDP, uh, which it's really nice because you get to use still the Linux forwarding table, like the kernel routing table. So you can say IP route this IP address list behind that NIC, um, which again, if you use DPK and VPP, you can't. Like everything has to be done in user land. Zero kernel. 
from yeah. okay, but you get some kernel. Okay, got and it. And this was the big lesson for me, right? Like as we went into this journey, I was like, okay, what, what does this really mean? And it became very obvious. Yeah, if you take it away from the kernel and you have to do everything in user land, you have to re-implement everything. So there's no TCP dump. There's no IP tables. You can't type in IP route this. In fact, there's no TCP stack, right? So it, all of that has like, to be re-implemented. It's like the monokernel. It's like people trying to make a monokernel to run a microservice, but for networking. Yeah. You know, where... Yeah. So you can do it really fast, but you better have to go all in on a team to to actually do that. It's not something you can just kind of uh, do in a second. So what was the answer? So what was the answer? One million packets a second through the core through. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What what was the answer with uh, with XTP? I don't have. I think with XTP it was something like ten million packets per second, and with um, VPP. I think it was around 14 million packets per second per core. Mm-hmm. So, you know, significantly more expensive or, you know, significantly cheaper in terms of budget. Mm-hmm. Um, so just switching to XDP, which is sort of a nice middle ground where you get some kernel functionality, but a lot of uh, speed improvements. Um, yeah, you got a 10x improvement or so. If, if you guys are interested, look at tunk.io. That's where all the details are. I don't recall the exact, but it was pretty impressive. It's a very steep learning curve though. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have to figure out if that's what you need. Uh, but certainly some of the new CNIs in the world of Kubernetes are yeah. leveraging a lot of that stuff. And a lot of the work, VPP and XDP have uh, CNI implementations. So yeah, cool. that's a, a very interesting topic. You've come a long way from not want, not liking coding. But again, you have to solve the right, find the right problem to solve. To, to yes, it, yes, so. yeah. Um, no, that's pretty cool. I, I remember when I first started seeing people try to do this and I was looking at SnapSwitch and I'm like, that's yeah. pretty fast for Lua. <laughs> like, what's going on there? That's yeah. pretty interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, Snap is another one. There's a few out there, uh, but I think, uh, yeah, XTP is gaining a lot of momentum and I think yeah. VPP is, is super interested in this. Well. By the way, if you guys are interested in VPP, the project, it also goes by Fido and the project name is fd.io. Um, it's, a, uh, it's actually a Cisco technology that they open source. Apparently okay. some of the Cisco products use it um, like internally, um, but um, it's pretty powerful. Uh, but I guess that that's it. If you need raw power, go look at it. But you really need it because it comes at a pretty high cost in terms of like investing and understanding what you're doing. Right. It's not like a dro- it's not like I'm going to replace Apache with Nginx or something, right? And it will take ten minutes to figure out. No, this is going to be measured in days or weeks. Well, that's a, a separate topic, maybe for another time. But the whole idea of white box and what's the idea of running Linux and it's nice, but you know, be careful what you wish for, um, you know, when you don't have vendor support for everything. Um, and I think, you know, again, a separate topic, but I think there's been some interesting middle ground. But I want to ask you, so I mm-hmm. saw all that work, which I consider to be low level, you know, you have to know how the systems work. You have to understand what's in the kernel, what layer, um, you know, I like that stuff. But then I've been looking at my socket and I'm like, <laughs> looks like sassy, but, and, you know, I was following tail scale and some of that stuff. Yeah. I'm like, so that's like, you know, sort of up a level. And I was like, well, that seems pretty simple, but it seems like there's some interesting things that you can do with it. So I'm sort of curious what what motivates you. Yeah. Uh, you know, for my You're kind of curious, like, what is this guy up to? He's all over the place. Then he's doing this, then he's doing that. Um, yeah. Um, so maybe, yeah. So the, so first, that, that was all around the cloud native networking type stuff, right? the, the data plane networking and right. then the control plane. Yeah. And then... Um, I, I, another project I was working on, yeah, is my socket. Um, so maybe uh, a little bit like what that is. So, so yeah. sort of the ten thousand foot level thing is, um, you know, what is my socket? It's kind of an alternative to remote access VPN type stuff. So I think the uh, the 
what what is the challenge with the typical VPN is like um, when I think like when I was at Cisco, any big or like I want to onboard Avi as a contractor, like and he needs access to wiki.corp.com. So I had to remember to create an IT ticket two weeks ahead of time. Um, and then, you know, we create a corporate account that would send you the AnyConnect client and then you could VPN in. And then the challenge with that is, well, um, Avi is now VPNing in. Now he basically becomes a member of the network. Um, again, I'll use Cisco as an example. That's a very big network. So obviously, smart guy, uh, he's going to poke around, right? Yeah, see what he can do. And, you know, it turns out we also gave him corporate credentials because he used SSO for VPN. And so now he finds a GitHub server and chances are he can actually log in, right? So that's the that's a typical problem. And so I was like, okay, how do we solve this? Now, there's a lot of people that have thought about this. And, and essentially what my socket was, is like, how would you build a solution to that? Something like what Google calls Beyond Corp, other people have called private access, zero trust type stuff. So that's what my socket is. So the idea is that, um, you know, you have this wiki server. Uh, it actually kind of dials out to, in this case, the MySocket Edge, a secure tunnel for just, say, port 443, that particular service. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Avi says, okay, I want to go there, wiki.corp.com. And then we act sort of as this bouncer in the middle and say, okay, we have this checklist. Is Avi allowed? Uh, we also check what Avi is doing exactly. And then, you know, if the more, and then we stitch those two connections together. And the nice thing is that the, the wiki example, uh, it can be in a private VPC behind NAT because right. it's an outbound connection. So no VPN changes are needed. And, um, and you know, Avi can be anywhere uh, and it can also be clientless. You don't need a VPN client or something like that. And so one of the things I'm doing, which sort of from a technical perspective really drives me is like, okay, HTTP was relatively easy because there's a lot of proxies out there. So how do you build more application-aware proxies? And and with application-aware proxy, I mean like it can speak the protocol like HTTP. And so I just... Is, is Quick tough to... Uh, I haven't looked at Quick. The ones that I've been looking at are more the typical remote access use cases like uh, SSH. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I have a Bastion host. Normally you need a VPN, right? Or a router. Like, how, I don't want to use the VPN. Okay, well, how do you do that? So then I built an, my own sort of SSH proxy, uh, your own implementation of that. And with things like Go, it's actually relatively easy. So I learned a lot of Go. Uh, and because we speak the protocol, we can we can do session recording, we can kill sessions, all that kind of stuff. Building an SQL proxy right now where we can log all the queries or can even modify what's getting back. If Avi does a select on users, I'm garbling the email addresses or something. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of stuff I'm working on with, with my socket where you're basically sitting in the middle as this application-aware proxy and provide um, policy authorization, authentication, and enforcement and recording and stuff like that. Yeah, I would encourage people that are looking at trying to play with technology to look at what Andre's done. I like the, um, you know, I try to think the same way. What's the minimum covering set that can that I can build to demonstrate the concept and mm-hmm. then build on top of it towards, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, look, it's a sassy zero trust <laughs> and everything platform that you could do, yeah. you know, whatever. Then, then that'll be the interesting question to ask next time is what are you going to do with it? <laughs> um, you know, uh, just project or, you know, company side, because uh, there's lots of different takes uh, on on the direction things are going. I'm actually here. I'm actually in Vegas. This is my virtual background, but of my actual home. But uh, I'm in Vegas at Black Hat, uh, you know, as we're trying to 
is much smaller than before, but you know, it's just interesting to try to poke through the marketing and find, figure out what people are actually doing. And that was part of my journey as well. Like a lot of these things I start with like, you know, I don't really understand what this, I keep hearing about it. And then I get slightly frustrated because I don't understand it. Right. So that's how, it, well, let's just yeah. build this DPDK thing or FCP thing. And, and in this case, like, well, zero trust is very popular. And I was like, I don't really understand anymore what this is. And I just go ahead and go like, well, if I would build it, what would it do? And then it's kind of a forcing function to go and figure this out. So I'm sure now that you're at Black Hat or DEF CON in Vegas, you've heard zero trust like a million times and everybody means something different. Um, yeah, it's been a, a good, it's just a great exercise to figure yeah. out what you think it is uh, because you're forced to, um, if you're implemented, you better understand what you're doing. Yeah, actually in 2003, um, for the first issue of ACMQ, Eric Allman, who I was like, oh, Mr. Sendmail, uh, re- reached out and was like, would you do an article for this? And I'm like, what do you want to write about? And I was like, I don't know what to write about. He said, well, what does Port 80 make you think of? You're, you're at Akamai. You know, <laughs> at the time. I'm like, it makes me think, ooh, I, I think I can say this, of the illicit tunnels that I have through Port 80 to my home stuff because they're firewalls. <laughs> I didn't like the firewalls. And I'm like, so I wrote it, you know, it said securing the edge. So if I had said zero trust, it would have been really cool. But yeah, you were uh, way ahead of your time then. But actually I was just, I just was talking about IP. So I didn't have the user concept, you know, in there, but you know, obviously yeah. nowadays that makes sense, right? Who's the user or the role or the service or, you know. Uh, yeah, tie it all together, right? User, yeah. expected role, like, and then like the application and you can tie in contacts like, hey, yeah. Avi is all of a sudden in Vegas at Black Hat. Yeah. Maybe we Why? want to, yeah. yeah. And his laptop's doing all kinds of weird things. So maybe we want to drive back a little bit of his permissions and stuff. So you mentioned something which I think is pretty cool because, um, you know, it's been part of the journey of networking for me is, I describe networking sometimes as lots of little simple things that interact in complex ways convolved with vendor bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, the average uh, sysadmin might find a kernel bug in their lifetime nowadays. It didn't used to be the case, but nowadays. Um, but, you know, the average network practitioner, uh, you know, it might be monthly or quarterly or yearly, depending on, you know, how mm-hmm. active you are. And um, sometimes... You know, the other thing with networking that I've found is that, you know, it can be hard until you put your hands on. You think there's complexity that there isn't. Like, I remember when I was learning BGP, I'm like, there must be performance-based stuff. Something must make make things change when the performance is bad. And Like, no, there isn't. Um, and so, you know, what you just said is really powerful, which is like, sometimes you just need to put your hands on. Whether it's because it's all marketing or because, you know, it can be hard in any kind of technology um, you know, to see the description and put it in your head until you really put your hands on. Um, and, uh, you know, I love that you're making, you know, all the blogs available and all that, but, you know, and code available for people to play with too. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no better way to demystify some of this stuff than uh, than just getting started. But, you know, to be frank, it is scary. It's intimidating and it takes a lot of time. Um, so you do have to have... Uh, that time, not everybody has that, and yeah. especially not not every employer allows you to do some of that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But that's the best way. Just make keep your hands dirty, and you know, keep you know, keep, stay in shape, essentially. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things I like to ask people is sort of uh, what's what's hot and what's hype. So it sounds like you're you're. Uh, Big on you're both big and hypey on sassy, but you're big on on the what you can do with Linux and disaggregating. But I'll, I guess I'll ask you, you know, the question: like, what do you think in networking in general is like, you know, really really cool, and what do you think is 
being talked about maybe more than than it should be? Ooh, ah, that's a deep question. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of hype around, um, well, yeah, zero trust and stuff like okay. that. Um, you know, there's a segment of things called um, uh, SDP, uh, software defined perimeter, um, which is actually quite interesting. Um, so, I don't know if this is exactly a question, but certainly what I've seen over time, and you know, a lot of actually folks like you will like. Uh, so traditionally, networks are dumb. Like this is a quick, dumb, fast pipes. And then there's been this trend over the last 20 years, um, you know, somewhat driven by people like us that want to make more money out of the network where our employers want. It's like to put more smarts and services in the network, in the network gear, in the firewalls and like all that kind of stuff. Um, and in fact, you know, Kentec is a company like we need, we, we want to extract value from the network value in terms of visibility and stuff like that. Um, and unfortunately, as an industry, we have been trying to put more and more stuff like that into the devices, into the networking. And so network gear has gone from just doing layer two, layer three, all the way up to layer seven. And this has been very, um, I've seen this around me, uh, I guess, stressful or uh, difficult on network engineers. And, you know, that's why I am heavily biased. Think in terms of engineers, uh, internet engineers, network engineers are some of the best around because they are forced to understand the full stack. Uh, right. If, if you know, I remember outages in various companies um, that if there was an outage, it was typically the network engineering team that, first of all, they had so many scars, they were battle-hardened, so they were cool under pressure. Right. Uh, but they also understood in a lot of chaos, they were very good in like trying to figure out where is the problem? Is it in this stack, this stack, where? Uh, because they understand all that. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also a lot of cognitive overload. So this has been great, or it's worked well for people like me and you that have been, every year we learn something new and sort of right. we've been driving uh, or, or, or sort of serving that wave. It's a lot more challenging for people that come out of university and want to become a network engineer. Right. But first off, there is, I don't think there is an education or a program. There's lots of computer science stuff, but you know, so that's, that's a problem. And I don't know if that really ever existed, um, but the world into sort of network engineering was a lot easier. So there's this problem for new engineers and even existing ones that I call, you know, just cognitive overload. You need to do so much nowadays. And um, depending on where you work, the network's either seen as a valuable asset. Um, you know, certainly the world that I came from is like, we were delivering network Right. add-on services. So it was seen as a strategic advantage if we, and, and same for Amazon, the more we invest in it, you know, the better and it's that side. Whereas if you work in a more enterprise environment, you're typically just a cost center, right? And so that's, that's very challenging, but you still have to deal with this cognitive overload. So why I'm saying this is like, I feel like we've reached a top, like a peak. And right now what you're seeing more and more is that networks are made dumber again, mm -hmm. which is a good thing in my opinion. And we talked a little bit about the service mesh. And a lot of that stuff is now built into applications, essentially. And I think um, service mesh, as hypey as it may be, and you know, like that's a whole question, what does service right. mesh mean to you and me? Um, but a lot of times I think that's, that's interesting that you see. So basically what service mesh provides, it's an alternative to your traditional load balancer or traditional firewall or whatever, right? Where traditionally we would... Um, put a load balancer in the, in the network and we would funnel all the traffic through there and from there on it would you know right. go to the things again. Um, service mesh is different. It solves it in a much more meshed way, if you will. Uh, but it's interesting that those um, responsibilities 
are now being basically put in a different part of the stack and also in different teams. Uh, similarly with security, where you had firewalls. But if you look at the cloud, we don't have firewalls anymore. Now we have security groups and whatever, right. and they're managed by the teams itself. And I think those are all good things because no network engineer I know ever liked doing ACLs and stuff <laughs> like that. Although they were always the voice of reasons, like, are you sure you want to open this up to the whole world? Right. Um, so I think that's uh, a bit of a trend that, that I'm seeing where, uh, and I think that's good for network engineers. Uh, it's also good for innovation in general because um, other teams uh, can can kind of reimagine that. Now, whether that's going to be as scalable and as good, uh, like look at... Uh, Kubernetes networking, it's its like, uh, well, it's getting better slowly, but it's been a big match. Kubernetes networking is flexible. It's flexible, but uh, if you came from the world where I came from, yeah. where you want to build network functions, like you want to build a firewall, okay, so first of all, I have to go through these three levels of network right. interfaces. Oh, and by the way, there's like three levels of NATing as well. It's like, right. this is great for proof of concept lab stuff, but there's no way I'm going to get significant amounts of traffic through this, right? So there's... I mean, that's part of just the evolution. Eventually, they'll solve that. But I think um, certainly a trend that I'm seeing, and I'm not quite sure if it's good or bad, but it's certainly good for network engineers that have this tremendous cognitive overload, I think. I think it's, you know, when I was an ISP in the 90s, um, every year, it was like a a paradigm shift. It was awesome. You know, for people that hate being bored, uh, which I hate being bored from a technology perspective. Uh But I do see a lot of customers, a a lot of people sort of confused between the service mesh and then Istio was going to be hot, but it's a coordinator, so what are you running underneath? And then network mesh and what some of the network meshes are doing. Because ultimately there's like there's policy, there's load balancing, there's telemetry, there's all these things. And and I do, I do sort of like the separating into dumb pipes versus the services on top. But I think there still is a lot of question about, is it going to be... Um, how much is sort of the load balancing service meshy stuff and how much of that network intelligence and balancing and things like that are going to happen down there. But it's interesting to see. I, I, I agree there's, it is an area of, of hotness and hype, you know, altogether. Um, and, uh, you know, we see a lot of innovation and I look forward to, fi- to seeing and figuring it out. We keep it pretty simple with our infrastructure backend, uh, you know, yeah. because we want the training to be simple and, you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah, thing- I mean, it's super fascinating. The network service mesh stuff, like, you know, basically all these overlay tunnels going everywhere. It certainly allows for more innovation, I find. Like, I, I know we got a lot of questions from that, sort of from other teams to the network teams that I led. And uh, I mean, we, we, we wanted to do it, but there just wasn't enough time. And then uh, what you see in, in several companies is where there's now two teams. So now there's the network team, the big pipe, dumb pipe stuff. Right. Um, and then there's an overlay team, for example, uh, somehow embedded uh, or you know, however you want to implement that. And that's where you get to do a lot of smart. So, okay, I only can see the networks that Avi has invited me to. And, you know, we provide the encryption on that level versus sort of the the, the underlay level. Um, and we provide authentication on top of that and failovers. And, and now it's all software. And so you're no longer limited in what you could do on the big Cisco, Juniper, Nokia, whatever boxes, right? And, and now what you want to do is only limited by your imagination. Um, and so that good, makes me scary. very excited. It's good. Yeah. It's, it's exciting, but it's scary because how do you document like all these, again, it's many simple things, but they convolve in complex ways. Um, you know, something else you said 
you know, you're talking about the lab days when we started talking. Um, and it used to be said that, you know, until you've destroyed a system, you weren't a real sysadmin. <laughs> until you've taken down the internet, you're not a real, you know, inter-networker. Yeah. Um, is that easier or harder? I mean, do we have labs that simulate that? Was there more freedom, less freedom? You know, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I um, I have a few of those scars myself. I'm very proud of them. I, I wear them in, with pride. But um, uh, if I think back of them, they were very stressful. Um, and I can, you know, having worked in a lot of operational environments uh, and seeing, you know, training new en- engineers, um, sometimes I feel a little bit bad because uh, it's a lot harder. Well, it's still very easy to make those mistakes, unfortunately, right? right? So, although we try to put in more uh, controls, uh, but the cost of making those mistakes are so much higher nowadays, right? Where when you created some kind of routing loop or I dropped an ACL somewhere and, you know, a pop went off that sucked for a few minutes, but then it wasn't the end of the world. But now, you know, depending on your environment, there's like millions of dollars and uh, just really bad press or whatever. And so... I think those mistakes will still get made, but the cost is a lot higher, uh, and uh, it will make a lot more impact on the on the engineer. So I think that's a very so you see this trend now with hug ups, you know, when there is. And I yeah. think that's great. Uh, that's been a change over the last maybe two or three years, um, because you know, outages do happen, and humans do make mistakes. So hopefully we'll learn from it. But it's certainly. I think, and um, harder. Well, it's not harder to make the mistakes. Maybe it is, but the cost is so much higher. So people are less willing to to experiment. They're a lot more careful. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, definitely interesting. There are people are trying to do labs like to simulate the internet and peering and all that. Especially because it's not just about technology; it's about politics, which is sort of layer mm-hmm. eight, layer, <laughs> depending on how you look at it. You know, especially with internet, you know, engineering, but. You know, how do you, uh, you know, help there um, and, uh, you know, give give people because sometimes until you really get it in your head, like the dangers of redistributing routing, which hopefully no one's doing much, but, uh, you know, routing protocols. But like until you see it and and it can be hard to really, you know, internalize. Uh, and the thing about automation is it can uh, save a lot of time or it can do the wrong thing really fast and really well because. Uh, yeah. Computers are are dumb and will do what you tell them to do. Yeah. To oh, you want me to remove this thing? I'm done. I've done it everywhere now. Like yes. you know, and there's a global outage. And exactly. you know, every now and then we hear like I mean, recently there was you know something with Fastly and then Akamai. I think two three weeks ago, and it's just hard down, right? And um, you know, whether that's network related or DNS, it's the same type of challenge. Um, I, I fully agree. Um, and the other challenge is as we are trying to scale these environments we're actually putting layers on top of that. So there's a lot of network engineers between quote, and I don't mean this in a bad way, that actually never log into routers. All they do is make changes through a GUI or a pull request in a Jinja template, and then magic happens, which is great for scaling and automation and and makes the network safer, assuming you do testing on them. But the challenge then becomes, okay, now it broke. Eventually something is going to break, whether it's a bug or whatever, right? And now all of a sudden you do have to log in. And then, you know, one of my my worries is that over time we lose that knowledge. Like, you know, yeah. that some, someone that can log in and understands the TCP three-way handshake to BGP um, BGP handshakes. And, you know, why, why is this route flapping or stuff like that? And that's a very interesting challenge as we scale up 
like how do you keep that sort of more and more niche knowledge? Um, yeah. How, how there are enough people that, that keep doing that? Yeah, I as an observability vendor, I like to think at some point we'd have all the telemetry and whatever to do that. But as you said, sometimes you need to get the TCP dump because there's something in the middle which you're never going to get telemetry from, which is behaving poorly, and you need to be able to point the finger and go figure it out. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's uh, sometimes it has been handy. Sometimes my fingers actually know more than my brain what to do with <laughs> a device. Uh, and, yeah. you know, as you mentioned, you, you do need to get baked a little bit under pressure sometimes. And sometimes it's helpful to have your own parallel processing of like, there's the incident, here's what I'm looking at, and here's what yeah. I'm there. So yeah, it's something I'm thinking about. And I think the community is thinking about is, especially with COVID, you know, because networking, especially internetworking, has always been a little bit of a, a tribal knowledge and an apprenticeship. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the 90s, yes, you didn't graduate to uh, above journeyman until you actually broke something and like, you know, yeah. it so congratulations, here's your medal. Now you have, exactly. uh, you know, root access. Exactly. But I, it's hard to really understand how bad the internet was in the nineties and, and yet it all worked. Uh, but, uh, uh, now that we live connected over it. So, um, those are things, you know, look, we're all going to think about blog about it. If you have any great ideas and something I'm going to keep asking people about, um, on that note, uh, any advice you'd give younger Andre, um, uh, you know, through the career? Younger Andre, I don't know. I think uh, I was very lucky to just stumble into the right things and be surrounded by, you know, this lab and the right people early on that you just kind of, I guess, directed me in the right way and was lucky to take the right risks and just have a good environment and good people around me. Um, if I think about new network or people that go are interested in this, or maybe you're just getting started or earlier in your career. Um, yeah, I think find those those people that you think you can learn from and that are willing to take uh, spend some time with you. Uh, find an environment and a company where uh, things like experimentation are encouraged versus like you know just don't touch it. Uh, that you know, is this fear and you'll never learn much. Um, and those companies do exist. Um, just talk to a lot of folks, um, read things like Nanog and stuff like that. You know, even that has changed a lot, but you know, just by, even by lurking and watching the presentations, you, you'll learn so much. Um, and to be honest, the one thing that was very important to me was, um, that I early on learned how to code essentially. And I still think that some of the best people I've worked with both understood Basic, and I'm not like, you don't have to be diehard programming, basic scripting. And nowadays, you know, especially if you're networking, Python is kind of the go-to language. There's tons of libraries out there for network folks. I think that's very important. Um, It will set you apart from some of the others. It will make your job a lot more fun too. I think there's just so much more. All of a sudden, you're no longer, you know, handcuffed by what the vendor allows you to do. You can build your own systems and change Mm -hmm. things. So I think that one is definitely one of my big tips. Spend some, and it's, if you, if you're not, if you don't know how to do it or if you've never done, it can be very intimidating. Um, but this, this has been the same for me with like DPDK or XDP or, or service mesh. Right. Like yeah. I didn't know any of that. Um, and so what's hard is to get started. And it's almost like, you know, I don't know, this weekend, or I'm going to take two days off, or maybe if you're, if you're lucky, you can talk to your, your manager or your boss and say, Hey, I want to spend two, three days just to get going because those first two, three days are the hardest and 
just watch some videos, do a course on like, you know, there's lots of course websites out yeah. there. And then once you get going, uh, you know, once you, you, you've written your first few scripts, um, then all of a sudden it starts to unlock and then you can start to uh, solve your own little problems. Uh, and then the future is um, limitless, essentially. Yeah. So I guess I'll follow that up with a few thoughts. Um, yeah. You know, first, I want to encourage everyone listening to do what Andre's done. Uh, it's something I, I have done too. It's like, as you learn, document and, and teach. Um, if you have a question that, that, that was confusing for you, guarantee you it was confus- it's confusing to someone else. No, you will not look stupid. You will look smart by breaking down the things that were confusing and then how you got unconfused. Right. You know, it's like the kernel is this big thing. And then we try to understand what it is and here in a different way, because different people learn differently, you know, and need that. Um, and so would just encourage people that, that that also is really helpful to the community and also acknowledge which you've said a couple of times, Andre, you know, we've both been pretty fortunate and, and lucky that the things we, we found our way in, we had access, we had privilege to, you know, take time um, and do what we thought was interesting um, and, uh, you know, if people are looking to get in, people are looking for mentors, people are looking for pointers, feel free to ping me, you know, I'm Avi at Avi.net, Avi at Kentic.com. Um, people like Andre, you know, if you demonstrate that you're reading and thinking and, and interested and can be passionate, um, we're happy to help connect you to people, um, you know, in your area of interest and try to grow the community because it's something we're all actively thinking about. Uh, as things get more and more abstract, and and uh, even as the world is opening up, uh, hopefully safely post COVID, you know, there's going to be different patterns, and we need to figure out how to how to teach and grow these communities. So, um, thank you for uh, being on and sharing, Andre. How can people find you and reach you? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter at atunk a t o o n k. That's the best way to reach me, or check out my website at tunk.io about all my adventures around uh, exploring some of these things and learning sort of in the public. Cool. Well, thank you very much, and I look forward to uh, maybe in another year uh, seeing uh, what progress you've made on my socket and whether you have a third uh, project, uh, maybe proto company uh, coming coming down the pike. So, awesome. Thanks very much. Well, thanks for having me, man.